Well, again, praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope and I pray that uh, that national hymn that we just sung would inspire you to pray more and more for our nation, that we as a people and that we as a nation might know what it is to be a godly and holy nation. Oh, what a blessing that would be if God would pour out His Spirit abundantly upon this land. May we know that in our lifetime. May we know what it is, again, to, to respond to the call of true holiness and true righteousness in our day. May God give us grace for that. What I'd like to ask you to do this morning is take your Bibles, please, and let's turn to back to Revelation chapter 3. We will continue in our, uh, uh, in our sermon series on uh, the uh, churches uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, this morning what we will be doing is we will be continuing uh, the letter that our Lord Jesus Christ sent to the church at Sardis. You might remember the last time we were together, not last week, last week we took a look at that, uh, at that great psalm, Psalm 126. We, we gloried in the fact that, uh, that God, by way of His mercy and grace, uh, had uh, worked in our nation in such a way as to lift uh, that, uh, that abominable uh, law of uh, Roe versus Wade, overturning it, allowing now again uh, the, the states to, to determine, may God give us grace in that upcoming struggle. There will be a battle there. May God give us grace in that. But the week prior to that, what we did is we took a look at this church at Sardis. And you might remember that as we looked at this church in Sardis, what we did is we saw the Lord Jesus Christ as the great physician diagnosing the church. Do you remember that? Our Lord Jesus Christ gave a diagnosis of the church. And our Lord Jesus Christ saw certain things there. And our Lord Jesus Christ gave a remedy for the church's dire situation. That church would have such a name by way of its activity, really, in, in reality, was dead. Our Lord Jesus Christ, again, was examining that church. It was examining not so much the outward effects of the church, it was examining the soul of the church. And while that church had much by way of outward show, outward display, inwardly that church was as good as dead. And so our Lord Jesus Christ gave the diagnosis. After the diagnosis, what did he do? He gave the remedy. And you might remember what that remedy was. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain. In other words, he said, consolidate those things that still have spiritual life. And so as our Lord Jesus Christ looks at this church and any church, he looks at that church and he says, oh, consolidate the things that are there. Are there any signs of life there in the church? Then by, the, by way of the grace of God, make sure those things have everything necessary to live and to thrive. And then our Lord, you might remember, not only did he give the diagnosis, but as a good physician, he not only gave the remedy, he also gave instructions on how to take the remedy. Remember what he said there in that third chapter once again. He said, he said not only strengthen the things that remain, but he says remember again. Remember the things that you have received and heard. And what was very interesting about that is that our Lord Jesus Christ was picking up a very common theme found throughout all the scriptures. Wherever he calls his people back to himself, he calls them not to seek some new thing as it were. He calls them to go back to the things he has already revealed. He says, go back to the old ways, as it were. Seek out the old paths, like we, like we read in Jeremiah. And so here was the Lord Jesus Christ again as this great physician, not only of the soul, but the physician of churches, uh, giving to this church not only a diagnosis, but the remedy that they needed to recover from their spiritual decay. Well, let's take a look at this passage of Scripture, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Please hear the word of God. And unto the church in Sardis write, These things saith, saith, I'm sorry, let me start again. 
And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, having considered already by way of review the diagnosis that our Lord Jesus Christ gave to this church, what we are going to do this morning is we're going to consider the commendation that our Lord gives to those in the church at Sardis. They were few, but there were some there, those in the church at Sardis, who had not, according to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, defiled their garments, but they were walking in a way that was pleasing to him. And what this reminds us of, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and what this reminds us of, and this will be the thrust of our sermon here this morning, is that even in dead and decaying churches, there may still be a remnant of God's people. And that remnant of God's people is known by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Did you notice what he says? Thou hast a few names. Jesus knows by names those who have not defiled themselves, or have defiled their garments in the day and age in which they live. And so what I want to do here this morning is I want to speak on this matter concerning the remnant that God has even when a culture is dying and decaying and even when a church is corrupt, there are still people that God has. And so I want to speak to you on this this morning. As a matter of fact, by way of our primary uh, doctrine or proposition, I would say this, a dying church may have a small remnant who in spite of the sins of society, and the spiritual rot within a church are still true followers of Jesus Christ and the only hope of a congregation. Do you understand what I'm saying here, what I'm trying to convey? Mm -hmm. Churches may again be rife with spiritual corruption and spiritual, spiritual rot. Society at large may be so far from the things of God, yet God still has a people, he still has a remnant. And this reminds us again of the saving mercies and the saving purposes of God. And so again, as I said before, I really want to emphasize this matter to you this morning. This introduces us to a concept that is sometimes spoken of, and it's the concept of what we would call the remnant. That God, in spite of the great and mass affection of humanity away from the things of God, God keeps a people for himself. This remnant, to be sure, is a remnant of grace. This remnant, to be sure, is a remnant of God's sovereign and gracious working upon a soul. This remnant, however, that God calls graciously is a remnant that finds the grace of God oper operative and active in the life. And so that in the soul of the believer, there is this sense in which he or she must do the will of God in spite of the cost. That's what it is to be the remnant, you see. This is why Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, uh, verse 9, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and, like, and been like unto Gomorrah. Here was Isaiah saying, unless, it was, unless for God's grace, we would have been completely taken away in our sins. Unless it was for God's grace, we would have been completely swept away in the sins of a society. 
Oh, and this is the great pull and the great tug on churches today, not to be swept away with the sins of society. And our Lord Jesus Christ, again, he sees and he knows these things. He sees this church Sardis, and this church Sardis was interesting, you might remember, for a number of reasons. Not the least of which was the fact that this church did not have anything internal or external to it by way of pressure. There's not a calling out of what we might say some of the internal problems that we notice with the, the, the other churches, the, the Nicolaitans there and the, and, and the followers of Jezebel and the Balaamites. You remember those groups in the churches that were saying to the church it was fine to, to kind of compromise or go along with the society in order to save yourself from the pressure either economically by way of standing outside the existing culture or even at the threat of your life by opposing the worship of Caesar. And there were, there were voices in the church that were saying, it's okay to go along with these things. And Christ took issue with these churches. And what's interesting in the, in the church of Sardis is that we don't see any mention of that. We don't see any mention of pressure. Uh, we don't see any mention of, of false teaching within, nor do we see pressure from without, as we saw in Pergamos. And in Pergamos, you might remember that there was real pressure. There, the same thing uh, with the church in Smyrna, particularly there was real pressure upon the church in Smyrna from without. And commentators have engaged this question, why is this? Why is it that this church, which is obviously uh, you know, uh, so in such a critical situation, our Lord Jesus Christ says you have a name that you live, but you're dead. You don't even know it. To use the old phrase, you're, you're a dead church walking and have no, no awareness of this. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, he, he points these things out. And the commentators ask, why, why is he not, why is he not uh, putting his finger on some specific sin? Well, what some have said, and I go along with this, I agree with this, that the church at Sardis had so acquiesced to the sins of society, to the sins of culture, to the corruption within the church, that it was now rife. The church was completely shot through with this kind of go-along mentality. The church was shot through with this kind of internal corruption. The individuals within the church were no different than the individuals outside of the church. There was no difference between the people of God and the people of the world. And in spite of whatever that church looked like, it may have been the biggest church in the center of town. Here in these old New England towns, we know what that's like. The way, the, the way town, uh, towns used to be constructed, the, center, the church was right there in the center. And some of these large, impressive churches are completely corrupt. And am I saying this just to be, am I saying this out of sour grapes? Am I saying this just to, uh, just to, to get on a hobby horse? I am not. This is what this passage of scripture is bringing out before us. You have a name that you live, but you're dead. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, again, the diagnosis, and he gives, he gives the remedy, and he gives the instructions. Again, the remedy, you remember, uh, 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 again, uh, uh, be watchful. Uh, he says there earlier, and forgive me for, for having this slip my, my mind here. Notice what he says here in verse 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. Consolidate that which is there. Is there spiritual life anyway, anywhere? Oh, get together. Is there spiritual life somewhere in the congregation? Oh, seek to strengthen it. You see, this is what our Lord is saying. But now, in this whole matter, again, what our Lord is saying, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Even this dead church still has some signs of life. It's critical, the condition they're in, but, it, but, it's, not irre, it, it, but it, it's not irremediable. It can still be remedied. And how can it be remedied? It can be remedied by the people of God having the Spirit of God come upon them in might and in power. The people of God living according to what God is calling them, the way that God is calling them to live. And so as I said before, I hope to set before you this, this idea that a dying church may have a small remnant in it. 
who in spite of the sins of society and the spiritual rot within that church are still, there are still true followers of Jesus Christ. And these ones are the only hope of a congregation. I was reading a, uh, I was looking at a, <laughs> forgive me, but you guys, some of you know me. But I was looking at a book of sermons this morning and uh, there was a sermon in there. I didn't start to read it. I was reading another one where a man was setting forth the proposition that the righteous are the only hope of a nation. The righteous are the only hope of a nation. You've heard me say this before. This nation needs your holiness. Amen. Well, this church needs your godliness as well. Amen. That you and I would stand for Christ in this day and in this age. And this is what our Lord is setting before this church here. It's kind of interesting, again, when we, when we consider this concept of the remnant, uh, how oftentimes we find it in the scripture. Most oftentimes we find it kind of in a theological way, uh, by way of an emphasis of the, uh, of the remnant of believers, of Jewish believers that our Lord Jesus Christ has kept for himself. There's coming that time, you remember, Paul talks about it in Romans 9 through 11, when all of Israel shall be saved. Until in this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. God still has a people among his ancient people. God still has a greater work of fulfillment of prophecy that shall break upon the people of Israel. And that's normally the way the word remnant is used. But it's also used to speak of those, again, who by way of the work of the Spirit within them and the grace of God operating through their lives, they show themselves to be faithful a faithful few among a multitude of those who are defecting. Oh, Nosset Baptist Church, are we a remnant church? Are we, a re are we the remnant people of God in our day? And I'm saying these things by way of a question. I'm saying these things by way of setting these things before you because it's necessary for us, you see. This whole matter, again, is exactly what Christ is calling us to. There is a sense in which corruption is becoming so thorough in society I was talking with someone yesterday, the idea that the very underpinnings that we used to kind of take advantage of or used to have set before us by way of what society was. Society, again, had, had a generally, generically uh, Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview. And we can talk about categories of righteousness and wickedness that would be understood in society at large. And even if individuals went opposite of that, at least they know they were swimming against the tide, so to speak. But we live in a day now where the concepts of Judeo-Christian righteousness, biblical righteousness, are outright rejected. They are criticized as being that which is counter to the well-being of a society. And now, again, in many ways, are we, are, we, uh, are we discouraged? Are we hopeless by this? Well, maybe somewhat discouraged, but we're not hopeless. Because we remember the gospel came into a setting and a situation that was not, again, basically a Judeo-Christian worldview. But the gospel went forth in power, didn't it? And how did it go forth? It went forth by way of prayer and proclamation. And what do we have as our resources here today? Nothing other than the Spirit of God praying and proclaiming the Word of God. Well, may God, may God be pleased again to bring about revival in this church and spiritual awakening in our land. You know, it was interesting again as I was preparing for this and trying to develop a little bit of this concept of the remnant. I came across again one of these older commentators and again we can understand the perspective that he was writing from. He said in our day, and this is probably going back 150 years, in our day there's probably hardly anybody that would not proclaim himself to be a Christian. 
Uh, however, this commentator went on to say, how many of these self-proclaimed Christians are genuinely Christians? And again, he was dealing with a society, as I said before, that was fairly Christianized. Again, the major concepts of morality, right, wrong, sin, righteousness, judgment to come, these all would have been understood by society at large. I don't think that's the case now. As a matter of fact, I would say this, that that question that the commentator asks of society at large is a question that now must be asked of the church of Jesus Christ. There are very few in the church of Jesus Christ that would not say, of course I'm a Christian, of course I, I subscribe to that, of course I, I live in this way. But, but are we, we're, and I say it purposely, are we really that? Or are we that in name only? You see, our Lord Jesus Christ says, you have a name. But the reality is not there. And I'm not here to, and again, as I, I say this may be too much, I'm not here to, I'm not here to, beat you up. I'm not here to, to rough you up. I'm not here to, to, to unnecessarily uh, uh, you know, get you out of sorts. But can we read a passage of scripture like this when Jesus Christ says to a church that by way of its own evaluation and by way of the evaluation of others says, oh, there's a great work going, oh, Sardis? Oh, there's a great church there? Oh, you're going to Sardis this weekend. Oh, you know, there's a real good church there in Sardis. And Jesus says, no, there's not. That church is dead. And there's only a few. But thank God there's a few. Thank God that God's grace is not extinguished. Thank God that it continues to go on. And how does it go on? It goes on by the work of the Spirit of God within. It goes on by the work of the Spirit in us and through us manifesting itself. And that brings us again to this idea then of the remnant, the few that our Lord Jesus Christ has, has notice of. And this brings us then to the commendation here now in verse 4. Today we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6. We're not going to get into excessive detail here. There is much, again, that has to be explained. Some very, very important terms here. Uh, the idea of the book of life really needs a lot of explanation. We're not going to give too much explanation uh, on that. That great honor of having your name confessed before the Father and his angels. What a thing to see. And again, we'll touch on that, maybe not develop that sufficiently, but we'll, we'll touch on these things. But what I want you to see by way of this remnant in Sardis is that they are marked by three things. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not the their garments, and they, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This little remnant is marked by three things. This remnant is, number one, marked by their holiness. They have not defiled their garments. This remnant, number two, is, is marked by their, and, and forgive me for this, you, you don't know how long I was trying to memorize my outline here, so just forgive me here for a minute. Uh, this, this little church is marked by its, not only is it marked by its holiness, this little church is marked by, are you ready for this? This little remnant is marked by its worthiness. Now we have to explain that. We understand that there is no merit that makes us worthy before God, but there is a gospel worthiness. There is a working of the spirit in the soul which changes and transforms the spirit the, the soul. And so this little remnant is marked by their is, is, is marked by their holiness, it's marked by their worthiness, and thirdly, it's marked by their blessedness. And we'll take a look at each of these things. Their blessedness, the third thing that they're marked by, has three elements to it. 
Uh, number one, again, they, they, they are known by name. Or they, they're given white raiment. Again, we'll take a look at that. Number two, we see that they will have their, their, uh, their, their name in the book of life that shall not be blotted out. We'll take a look at that. And, and then lastly, we will see uh, that, they, uh, that, they, uh, that their name shall be uh, confessed before the Father. We'll take a look at each one of these as we go along. So let's take a look at each of these things that we see here. The first thing I want you to see then about this little remnant is that they are known by way of their holiness. Did you see that there in the fourth verse? Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. What is the concept here? Well, in one sense, the, the garment uh, that's being referred to here is that, that which represents the totality of life. There is speaking of a, there is the, the thought of white raiment being given. That might have more to do with that righteousness that Christ gives to us. We'll take a look at that. But here in this little section here, we have, again, that reference that they have not defiled their garments. In other words, they lived in a way where they were not stained with the sin either of society at large or within the church itself. And this is, again, this is a great challenge, and this is something that has to be emphasized. This was a holy remnant within the church. This was a remnant of people who did not walk around with their noses up in the air and say, stay away from me because I am holier than thou. That wasn't these people. But these were that people who had a true, humble holiness about them, whereby in their lives there was conformity to the person of Christ, whereby in their very nature there was something that they found revolting about the very concept of sin and something, oh, something, can I use the word something enchanting, something desirous about the holiness of God? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when I asked the question, does the very concept of holiness enchant you? Does the very concept of holiness thrill your soul? Is there something about that idea of living for Christ and for his glory in this world which captures you? I hope that there is. These people had it. This little remnant had it. They did not defile themselves. This brings us back to what we saw in the other churches. And, and again, the commentators bring this out, that what this is probably referring to, this is probably referring to those corrupting elements within the church that were saying to the church by way of teaching, they were saying to the church that it was okay to kind of acquiesce to the sins of society, that the sins of the culture were not that which you had to stand against, and it was, it was not contrary to your stand with Christ in the world to go along with the sin. That was a defiling of their, that was a defiling of their garments when they did that. And again, our Lord Jesus Christ took note of those who were willing to stand for him. And so this whole idea, again, of the fact that these ones, they were holy before, before God. They lived in a way that was pleasing to him. The next thing I want you to see here, and again, in one sense, this is even prior to their holiness, is the fact that Jesus Christ knows their names. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. That was a few names in Sardis. Can I say it this way? He knows your name. Can I say it this way? That he takes recognition of those who are truly his. The Lord knoweth those that are his. Finish, the, finish it for me. And let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You see, these ones who know Christ, these ones who are known by Christ, it, it manifests itself. It makes itself known in life. And so again, there are these ones who Jesus knows thou hast a few names in Sardis. Oh, does Nosset have a few names? I hope and I pray that we do. I hope and I pray that, we'll, that, we're, that, that we're filled with, with these names that Jesus knows. 
And so again, this, 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 this recognition of names. I find it very interesting that whenever we talk about the, the, the knowledge that our Lord Jesus Christ has of, of these names and the knowledge that God has of us, we have to in some way talk about the greatness of God's love and the extent of it, don't we? We have to talk about the wideness of God's mercy, the depth of God's mercy, the breadth of God's mercy, the great reality that you can walk out of these doors and you can say to yourself right now, if I'm not saying it sufficiently, that God sent the Son in the world to save sinners. That again, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And we can say that you can walk out of these doors this morning, the first person you meet, you can say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And aren't you, aren't you glad also that not only the, do we realize that we can say that, but we also realize that we have to say other things as well. And that we might say it this way, the main thing in a sense isn't the only thing that must be said. Not only must we say that God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We must also say to a watching world, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Well, there's a little difference now. The person who hears you may take issue with you. Sinner? What do you mean by sinner? Isn't that an antiquated term? Isn't that somewhat offensive that you would just walk up to me and say that I'm a sinner? Who are you to, say, who are you to make that kind of judgment on me? Oh, you see how the gospel seems to be now restricted and narrow it seems to be and how the world places upon the beauty of the gospel this, this kind of restriction that again has nothing again to do with the, how consistently God calls the sinners to himself. The problem with society today is this recognition of its sinfulness before a holy God. Society will gladly hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should be saved. But society may hold you off at an arm's length if you say to them, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if you ever preach the gospel that way, if you ever proclaim the gospel that way, you know, Jesus Christ loves the world. He loves sinners. Are you, do you understand yourself to be a sinner? Do you know that there's no coming to salvation apart from recognizing your need for Christ? Did you know that Jesus said even though he loved the world and gave his life again that the world might be saved, I come into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved, John 3, 17. Did you know that Jesus also said, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners? You see, again, this reality of sin. And in our day, sadly, when the greatest sin is saying that there is sin, we oftentimes face an uphill battle, do we not? But we must stay true to the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And so not only can we say that Jesus Christ died, that again, whosoever believes in him might be saved. Not only can we say uh, to, to those <clears throat> who hear us, we can say to them, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We can also say this about the death of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ loved me. You see, he knows my name. He knows your name. And when Jesus says to this church in Sardis, you have a few names that have not defiled themselves. He is saying something very specific to each and every one of those who have remained faithful, who are the true remnant. And so this idea that Jesus knows your name is no insignificant thing. And I come back to what I said before. Every, you know, th those who, uh, again, who, whose names are known by Jesus Christ, what do they do? They seek to live in a way that's pleasing to him. 
And so these ones then, they are noted for their holiness, the ones here in, uh, in Sardis. The next thing I want you to see is that these ones are noted for their worthiness. Notice what we have here now in, at the end of verse 4. Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, <clears throat> and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now we really have to be careful here. And again, one of the things, especially as I am trying to press upon your hearing the necessity of being that remnant people who, who are known by the, the gracious activity of the Spirit of God upon us, man, me, manifesting itself in Christ-likeness, you must hear and understand what I'm saying about this designation of worthiness. They are known for their holiness and they are known for their worthiness. This worthiness is not a worthiness whereby we merit the favor of God. That's not what's being spoken of here. But rather, if I can coin a term here, this worthiness is a gospel worthiness. That whereby the work of Jesus Christ upon the heart, the Spirit of God working within, there is now conformity of the life of the individual Christian to the call of Christ. And so that when Christ calls a sinner, he doesn't call him just in a moment of time for a moment of time. He calls him with an eternal call upon his life exhibited in time that he might through the rest of his days live under the glory of God. Amen. And so when Jesus Christ calls you to stay faithful to him and you stay faithful to him, he says again, you're, you're worthy, not because of any effort on your own. Again, unassisted by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God working in you and through you. But there is a genuine conformity to the life of Christ. And so here we see again this idea that Christ calls his people to a certain way of living. And those who hear and abide by that call are designated by Jesus Christ as those who will walk with him because they are worthy. And I guess this is maybe the way to set it. Are you walking with Christ this morning? Or did you come along Christ for a side for a while and say, hey, I'm good with that whole idea of not having to go to hell for my sins? And then did you stay there and as Christ walked on? No, Christ calls you to walk with him, you see. And sometimes this involves a challenge, doesn't it? Sometimes it involves saying no to old friends. Sometimes it means making new friends that at one time you thought, I'll never get along with somebody like that. That old holy roller, what what have I had anything to do with him for? But there you are, finding a love for the people of God. And so again, this work of Jesus Christ in the soul, this designation of of this remnant group in the church of Sardis as those who are known by Christ, I know that he knows their name, and those who are not only holy, but those who are walking in a worthy manner before God. You might remember, I think it was about maybe a month ago on a Lord's Day evening service, we took a look at this concept of worthiness in the New Testament. It's amazing how many times Christians are called to walk worthy of the gospel, we see this in Ephesians uh, uh, 4, uh, verse 1, a very, uh, very well-known passage of Scripture. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherein you are called. Did you see two of the parallel concepts there in the church at Sardis? They shall walk with me because they are worthy. Here Paul says in Ephesians 4, uh, chapter 1, again, walk worthy of the calling where which you are called. Christ calls us to a holy life. The same thing we see in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, that you will walk worthy of God who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. You see, again, it's one thing to, to be a church in name and to have a name but not to have any life. And our Lord Jesus Christ, again, exposes. Our Lord Jesus Christ gives the remedy. Our Lord Jesus Christ, again, notes those who are being faithful. And so they are noted by their holiness 
and they are noted by their worthiness. I have to say this again. Do not misunderstand me. This worthiness is not a self-generated worthiness whereby you and I gain merit before God. And because we've done so much, God will do the rest. Because we've worked this much righteousness, God will give us more righteousness. No, this worthiness is a worthiness that springs from a gracious activity of God upon the soul, giving to us a standing and a position whereby we are now able to live in the very way that he calls us to live. My brothers and sisters, are, are we that people? Are we that people? And in a very real way, in a very real way, I can't make that call for you. You can't make that call for me. There's a sense in which every one of us must deal with God alone in our closets by prayer. And we must plead with God to show us the true state of our souls. There are people who come to the end of their days thinking they did nothing but the service of God throughout their life. You know the passage of Scripture in Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, did we not do mighty things in thy name? Did we not cast out devils? They were able to fool the devils that they couldn't fool Christ in that last day. And so again, this idea of living in a way where the Spirit of God works so deeply upon us that nothing but His grace flows from us. Oh, may God make us that people. So they are a holy people, this remnant. They are a worthy people, this remnant. But thirdly, we see here that they are a blessed people. Notice the, the, what constitutes their blessedness. Here we see this in, in verse 5. And, and he that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. If you look at that passage, you'll see three things that constitute the blessedness of the people that Christ is referring to here in this, uh, in this church at Sardis. Number one, he will be clothed in white raiment. Number two, his name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Number three, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Let's take a look at each of these things. First of all, I want you to see, that you see what our Lord Jesus Christ said there in verse five? He that overcometh. This is the great emphasis in almost every one of these churches, that Jesus Christ calls his people to be an overcoming people. You and I, we must overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. You and I must overcome false teaching within the church. You and I must overcome the hostilities of a world at large. But Jesus Christ calls us to be overcomers. And again, we keep coming back. This is the chorus. This is the refrain. What do we come back to? How do we overcome? We overcome again by by the grace of God, by the work of the Spirit within us, by the blood of the Lamb, and by our testimonies being infused with God's grace by way of His Spirit. You see, these activities are not humanly generated activities, but they certainly do take place in and through us. He that overcomes. You know, I was thinking in this past week some of the things that we're going through. There's a passage, I believe, in, in Jeremiah where, where God is saying to Jeremiah, if you can't contend with the footmen, how are you going to deal with the horsemen? And what he means by that is simply this. If you can't deal with the infantry, what are you going to do when the cavalry comes? If you can't deal with the lesser, how are you going to deal with the greater? And in so many ways, I think all of our little trials and tribulations, we're sometimes not even dealing with the footmen. And if we can't stay faithful to Christ in this day, oh, what about that day that will come upon us? when there will be true restrictions on the worship of God, when there will be restrictions upon, again, professing the name of Christ. Will that day ever come? I hope not. not I hope it never comes to this land. That's why we we sing these national hymns. 
not to not to just you know gin up all kind of a, uh, you know a, a, a patriotic fervor apart from godliness. What good is patriot? good is patriotism, patriotism apart from godliness? Oh, but patriotism joined with godliness. You see, again, this is what we are calling. And so, again, if we can't even deal with the footmen, how shall we stand when the when the, when the horsemen come? And so many times, again, our, our little petty difficulties that we have, we deal with these things in such a way as to become overwhelmed, and we need to remember and we need to realize that God is, is strengthening His people for a day. And all of those, again, who leave off these things of Christ do themselves no favor. And so their blessedness, their blessedness, again, is prefaced by the idea, the concept that they have overcome. He that overcometh. But let's take a look at the things that, again, mark their blessedness. We see here that they are given new raiment. This is interesting because they've already kept their, their, they've already kept their garments undefiled. Now we see here the passage of Scripture tells us that they will be given new raiment. And I really believe that this speaks really truly of the righteousness that Christ gives to his people. I think of that great Old Testament passage of Scripture, Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Jesus Christ gives to you this robe of righteousness. And again, it's an interesting thing to see here. Because there's a sense in which we can say it this way. That the robe of righteousness is given. And that the believer keeps himself unspotted from the world. In that robe of righteousness that Jesus Christ has given to him. But this designation is, is having this, this new raiment. It's kind of interesting because it would speak to the privileges of citizenship. And what's interesting here is that each of these three terms of blessedness have something to do with citizenship in the ancient world. There was, again, that garment that was given. It designated that individual as an accepted one in society. He or she, again, had this standing and was given this white raiment. The second thing that we see here, and this, uh, this, this uh, next point will generate a little bit of interest. The next thing that we see here is that his name will not be written out, or I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Now this is very interesting, isn't it? And there's a lot of discussion that goes around this. First of all, the reality of that there is such a thing as the book of life. We see this over and over again in Scripture. Off the top of my head, I want to say probably at least four or five, maybe six places in Scripture. We see a reference uh, to the book of life. And it's interesting because as we stay with the concept of citizenship, it's interesting that in the ancient world that there would have been a book of citizenship. And all those who, by way of their actions and their standing in society, were citizens in that society, they would be written in that book. And if by way of crime or by way of treason or by way of defection uh, from, the, uh, uh, from the state, uh, their name would be blotted out. Crim a criminal's name would be blotted out of the book of life. And so there's a lot of discussion as to whether or not that's exactly what's being referred to here. When we look at this idea theologically, what we find is this, is that so oftentimes it's said that this book of life is a, is a register, as it were, of all those who from eternity past God has determined to say. This is fair enough. I think, again, we understand that your name and my name, again, Re Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, whose names were written in the book, in, in, in the, in the, uh, in the book of life of, of the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. We see this and we can understand it. We, we, we go along with that. But what becomes problematic for us is that we introduce a question at this time. Jesus says, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. And the question we raise is, can my name be blotted out of the book of life? Can I suggest something here? That's a valid question. 
But that's not what this passage of Scripture is dealing with. Rather, what this passage of Scripture is dealing with is the certainty and the privilege and the blessedness of those who have overcome, those whose few names are known in Sardis, those who have not defiled their garments with the sins of society or of a corrupt church. And while the question is valid, can, can the name be blotted out of the book of life? That's not where this passage of Scripture is going. So tonight I hope to, this is not an advertisement, but tonight I hope to go into a little more detail about the book of life. Right now I just want to say this, that that's not the direction that this passage is going in. The direction that this passage is going in is to affirm the certainty that those who overcome, those who do not defile their garments, those who have not been swept away with the kind of current tide of sinfulness, their names will never be blotted out. You understand, you understand the way it's being framed? It's being framed to give confidence, and the confidence isn't just in the fact that the name is written down, there's something there, but the confidence is in the fact that you see the Spirit of God working through you. And the very thing that God is calling you to by way of holiness and by way, and by, and, and, and by way of worthiness and by way of blessedness are all being manifested in the life. And so the passage is setting before us, again, this confidence. Let me see if I can give you some, maybe some clarification on this. And so the, this, this concept of the book of life has various ways of understanding it. And just bear with me as I read my notes here. Uh, this, this book of life is, is sometimes viewed as a register of citizens. Uh, upon, uh, and upon the loss of citizenship, the name was removed. Some great crime was committed. Some great act of treason against the state or the nation was committed. And therefore, the name was blotted out of the register. The point here is not to introduce a question, but to, ref to, but to affirm a reality. And that's an important point. The point in this passage of Scripture, when our Lord is commending those faithful in Sardis, is not to introduce a question, but rather it's to affirm a blessing. And the blessing that's being affirmed is that, is that their name shall not be taken out of the book of life. These who overcome shall never have their name blotted out. In a sense, that's what's being said with an exclamation point. These who overcome, they shall never have their names blotted out. The idea is to give affirmation and certainty to those who see the Spirit of God working within them and to those who, again, are standing against a sinful society or a corrupt church. When we ask the question, can a name be blotted out, we go in a different direction than the text. It may be a legitimate question, but it is not the point that's being made in this passage. The point is this, the few in Sardis who have not defiled their garments shall never have their names removed. And in fact, not only shall they never have their names removed, they shall have their names confessed before the Father. You see the point. You see the emphasis is being made. It's not designed here to introduce a question. It's here to affirm a reality that those in whom Christ is working and those who are standing faithful to him in their age their names shall never be blotted, and not only shall their names never be blotted out, their very name, your very name, shall be confessed before the Father in heaven. This is a great blessing that Christ has given to these ones, you see. And this constitutes the blessedness of this holy remnant. Now again, so many, much more, so many more things can be said, but the idea here is this. As the church of Jesus Christ is living faithful to him in a corrupt society. Christ will not forget him. As you confess his name before a watching world in word and in deed, Christ will confess your name before his Father and his angels in heaven. 
The point of the passage is to make an assertion of the blessedness of those who walk with Christ in a corrupt age. So here is this passage. And how do we close it out? Well, in a sense, we go back to our text. And we plead as Christ himself does. What does he say there in the sixth verse? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you want to know what the Spirit of God is saying to the church today? Read these letters. Do you want to know what the Spirit of God is saying to the church today? He is saying, be a holy remnant. Do you want to know what the Spirit of God is saying to the church today? He's saying, all those who live faithfully and confess my name and word and deed before a watching world, their name shall be confessed before my Father which is in heaven. Great challenges to the church of Jesus Christ. Great challenges to a society. Great challenges on a number of hands. But all oh, to those who walk faithfully before the Lord Jesus Christ and who walk with him in a way that we see here, he makes these great promises. Well, then what would I ask you to think about as we leave here today? I would ask you to deal with this question concerning this, the, the, the remnant and the, and, the, and the smallness of it. Now, don't get me wrong. Smallness doesn't necessarily mean that in every group that is gathered, only a very small percentage of that group are the true remnant. Can I, can I be as maybe as encouraging as, as possible here? Can I say this? Can I say that your very presence here on this Lord's Day morning is a mark of the fact that you are that remnant that Christ is calling? Can I say that? Can I encourage you that way? Can I ask you to think of how, how wonderful it will be if, I would, if you would hear on that day your name confessed before God and before the angels in heaven? I can call out some of your names right now, and I guarantee it's human nature. Your ears would perk up. They would. I would say, Terry. I would say, Chris. You ever, you ever be in a, in a crowd somewhere and somebody, and they're not even necessarily calling you, but they call your name. You turn around and you look. Something about having your name called, right? Well, in heaven, your name is going to be confessed. Stay faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ, and I want you to have that as a motivation. And so again, think of, what it will, think of what it will be to have your name confessed before God. Think of what it is to live in a society where more and more it becomes difficult to take a stand for Christ. My brothers and sisters, can I say it like this? In this day when the footmen are upon us, may we stand together shoulder and shoulder so if and when in our lifetime the horsemen come, we shall be a body of Christ united for Christ, against the hostile world, filled with His Spirit, committed and convinced of doing His work in this day in which He's called us. My brothers and sisters, Christ has a people, and Christ has a church, but you need to hear me say this. Not every church is a true church of Jesus Christ, but that doesn't mean but those of you who are gathered here are not part of the true church of Jesus Christ. As I said before, I can't examine your conscience here. You must go before God and you must ask God yourself how you stand. I must do this. Am I here just because I want to hear you? I want, I want you to hear me talk to you? Am I here just because I receive a salary from this church? Am I here just because it, 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 uh, it uh, scratches some itch I have? 
Or am I here because of a genuine work of grace within the soul? And every expression of holiness is nothing more than a reflex of the soul. It's not something you're doing to gain favor or merit with God. Oh, but when God works in the soul, well, my brothers and sisters, it's our Lord Jesus Christ who is the physician examining this church. And he's given to the church the diagnosis. He's given to the church the remedy. He's told this church how to take that remedy. But more important than that, he's seen within his church those who are living faithfully to him. Let us be that people. Let us be that holy remnant. Let us live for his glory. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, make us what we ought to be. Keep us from being what we naturally would be. And work within us all of your saving grace and power, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.